Shameless Media. This episode of the Shameless Book Club is brought to you by Bailey's Irish Cream, inspiring indulgence through me time moments. A good writer can create an entire universe with nothing more than words. But what happens when real life is even more outrageous than a story in a book? Welcome to Stranger Than Fiction, where we investigate the intriguing world of writers and the bizarre reality behind some of the world's most famous stories. I'm your host, Eilish Gilligan, and today I'm joined by Shameless Media co-founder, Zara McDonald. Hi. Hi. I'm excited. I'm sitting here. I've got my cup of tea. I'm ready to be taught things. Yeah, you're ready to learn. I'm ready to, am I going to learn a lot? It's going to be a fun lesson. Don't I'm, worry. I'm so excited. <laughs> so Strange the Fiction is the monthly series where we recap the most bizarre stories to rock the lit world. And today we're going to be talking about the fascinating history of the New York Times bestsellers list and the sneaky little ways some authors have tried to hack their way onto it over the years. Is this like the thing where the rumours or the myth about Taylor Swift's (laughs) parents buying all her albums to send her to the top of the Billboard charts or something? Yeah, you're not a million miles away. Okay, nice. Good to see I'm on the right track. Do you know anything about the New York Times bestsellers list, like how it's calculated or how it's Started. I know nothing. Okay. That's a wonderful place to start. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so the New York Times bestsellers list is the most famous list of bestselling books in the United States and arguably the world. The first edition of the New York Times bestsellers list debuted in October 1931 with nine titles on the list. So this first list only calculated the bestselling books in New York City when it was first debuted. But it was later expanded to factor in book sales throughout the entire U.S. Since then, it has expanded to a weekly collection of lists that include multiple different categories. We're not going to list them all here because there's actually a lot. Yeah. It isn't easy to be a New York Times bestseller, right? right? I mean, I know you're probably going to tell me that there's a way I could have hacked it back in the day when we (laughs) launched our first book or something. But what I always find interesting about authors is so many people say they're a best-selling author. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's there's no real set definitions on like what it means to be. Well, there actually are set definitions of what it means to be a bestseller, but I think it's thrown around quite a lot. A New York Times bestseller is quite a specific thing, but you can be a New York Times bestselling author in a specific category, right, that's quite niche. Yes. That's what I know. Yes. So that is one of the most fascinating things I found out, even just right up the top, the fact that there's so many different lists. Right. On the New York Times bestsellers list umbrella. So let's list a few here. The major lists are combined print and ebook fiction and combined print and ebook nonfiction. So basically, fiction and nonfiction are the big starry lists. Totally. You know? They're the ones that you're like properly, properly successful if you're on. They are serious. Here am I pretending that if you're in, on any of the others, you're not. But yeah, no, yeah. Like they're the ones. <laughs> they're the it ones. Exactly. So the lists are further divided by genre. So, for example, another major list is advice, how-to, and miscellaneous. And the book Atomic Habits has been sitting at the top of this particular list for a very, very long time. All those white men. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> As we know, getting your title onto the New York Times bestsellers list holds a lot of power. In fact, according to a 2004 study by an economics professor called Alan Sorensen, appearing on the New York Times bestsellers list increased debut author's sales by 57%. So this is an older statistic, obviously, but it does reflect a pattern. Being on the bestsellers list is going to boost sales even more. It's a prestigious title, something that offers a kind of general public endorsement of authors and their work to a wide audience. I thought this was kind of interesting too because it's like by being on the bestseller list, you guarantee more sales. It's like yeah. a cycle. Yeah, and then you are more likely to stay on there. Yeah, So exactly. it's like the real success is getting on there. I know a lot of authors will say, I've been on the New York Times bestseller list for 40 weeks. But again, I guess it's that self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. So how is the list calculated? I know it sounds like it would be really simple. It's like, well, who sold the most books? Yeah, that's what it should be, right? Mm-hmm. But it's actually a bit of a mystery because the New York Times has never actually completely disclosed their method for calculating the list. Right. Yeah. Sounds weird. It is kind of but weird. But why not? Like, what What have you got to hide? Exactly. Or is it that idea that it's like a bit of mystery kind of makes it more interesting? I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah. To summarise what the New York Times have said about this process into layman's terms, so a book's ranking on the list reflects how many copies of that book were sold that week. Sounds simple enough. The sales reports come from thousands of confidential book retailers of different sizes. So the New York Times have also noted that the book genres that they don't include on the bestsellers list rankings include required classroom reading, textbooks, reference and test preparation guides, journals, periodicals, crossword puzzles, and more. So basically, the New York Times has this massive database of book retailers across the country, and every week, these retailers confidentially report their book sales numbers on thousands of mainstream titles. So it's all of these private booksellers, either, you know, retail chains or independent bookstores. We don't know exactly who it is, but they're all calling up the New York Times confidentially and being like, we sold this many books this week. Okay. And the obvious question here is, what's in it for them? That's a great question. But like, why would you tell the, what's in it for you to tell the truth? What's in it for you to tell a lie? Exactly. And also another thing that I thought was really interesting was the fact that there's so many books out there that are being sold at like monumental numbers that are in no way calculated by the New York Times. Like they're just totally. So they're not even part of like the method. Yeah. If it's sold at a, what the? That's just, it doesn't seem like the logical way to do this. I have to be honest. I was thinking this as I was reading through, but I also was wondering like, okay, but what is the logical way to do this? Because if somebody's... Yeah, no, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) If someone's been assigned like a class textbook, obviously there's going to be a certain amount of people buying that textbook. Yeah, the textbooks make sense to me. I actually didn't even think about it until you said that they're obviously not on the list. And I Mm. was like, yeah, that's probably fair because it's not really a measure of popularity more than it is like buy this book or you're kicked out of school. Exactly. It's also like crossword puzzles? Yeah, I like, know. What's against them? Yeah, get yeah. them on the New York Times. Yeah. According to Vox, the general consensus is that if you want your book to land on the New York Times bestsellers list, you have to move at least 5,000 books in one week, but potentially even up to 10,000. So this is the other thing that's really confusing. We don't know how many books to sell to get on the list, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think some of our listeners might be thinking, that sounds quite low, five mm. to 10,000. 
thousand books, but books don't sell that much. No, they really don't. Like if you're a best-selling author, I think it's like technically when I said at the top here, there are technical numbers. I'm actually not even going to bring them today because I've forgotten. But I actually think it's like over 10,000 books in Australia, you're a best-selling author, yep. which sounds really small yep. in comparison to kind of what we know about digital media and how much we consume. But People don't buy books. Totally. It's the same with like music sales. Yeah, right. You'd is be it? so surprised by how low the number is to get you kind of like moving on the charts. Right. It's quite, it's a bit sad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Best to ignore. So the book retailers themselves are kept confidential to circumvent potential pressure on the booksellers and prevent people from trying to game their way onto the lists. So I think the reason these booksellers are confidential is because they would have people calling up and being like, hey, like... I want a hundred copies. Yeah, yeah. Of 4 (laughs) a.m. So this obviously begs the question, can you actually game your way onto the bestsellers list? Do you think that you can? Well, I think the whole point of this is there's going to be a way that I can, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of depends on what your personal definition is of like gaming. gaming. Yeah, that's such a good point. You know? So I'm going to start with a quote unquote game, I suppose, that I think is actually perfectly okay and, a, and is a widely used tactic in the book industry. Can you guess what I'm about to say? No, like not at all. <laughs> I've okay. got monkeys dancing in my brain. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you'll know what I'm talking about as soon as I say it. A good example of an above board tactic to boost your chances of ending up on the bestsellers list is when a title is on pre-order, any sales that take place during that pre-order period contribute to the first week of sales. Yeah. And that happens in Australia as well. Mm -hmm. So when, like, for example, when we've released books before, that's why they tell you to go so hard at Mm pre-order because that's actually captured in your first week of sales. And that helps you on even like random Australia lists that some of our listeners wouldn't have even heard of. So I think that's fine Mm -hmm. because I've done that myself. Yeah, totally. It's completely above board. Yeah. No issues there. Realistically, if you have a long pre-order period and encourage readers to pre-order your book, this can greatly increase your chances of landing on the bestsellers list in your book's first week, which, as we know from what we just learned, if we land on the bestsellers list, it actually increases your sales even more. Yeah. And it's one of those things, though, because the strategy of pre-order is actually quite an interesting conversation where it's like, yes, you want a long period of pre-order, but if it's too long, people aren't going to pre-order a book that they're not going to see for six months. Exactly. So they usually think that that hot sort of period is about three months where you go really hard and have different publicity points in that three months. Yeah, 100%. So that is the okay way of doing it, obviously, but there are some sneaky ways and we're going to look at those now. Great. So for authors who are willing to pay their way onto the list, there are reports out there of companies who can be hired to do all of that dirty work for them. So back in 2013, the Wall Street Journal ran an investigation into the process behind paying, quote unquote, for a best-selling book. The journalists had noticed a pattern of business-focused books appearing on bestsellers lists in their first week and then dropping off the lists altogether from the second week onwards, which is quite unusual for a book popular enough to get onto the lists in the first place. So as per the Wall Street Journal, the authors of these books hired a marketing firm that purchased books ahead of the publication date, creating a spike in sales that landed titles on the lists. The marketing firm, San Diego-based Result Source, charges thousands of dollars for its services in addition to the cost of the books, according to authors interviewed. So essentially this Result Source company allegedly bought thousands of copies... (laughs) 
<laughs> bought thousands of copies of their clients' books in order to land them on the bestsellers lists, even for just one week, and charged their clients for the books and a service fee on top of that. I'm just a little confused as to why you would pay a marketing firm to buy the books when you could just ask your friends to buy in bulk. I think because the amount of books that you need to buy, remember order, we were talking yeah, about like 5,000. 5, okay, so a marketing <laughs> firm probably has the scope to be able to do things like this. Exactly. Actually, true. What does anyone do with 5,000 <laughs> books turning up at their desk? <laughs> so the New York Times noticed that this was happening, obviously. So they developed this consequence that takes place if the New York Times suspects that you have made your way onto the bestsellers lists unethically. So specifically, if they suspect that you have facilitated a bulk purchase of your book to inflate sales numbers, they have developed a consequence. Have you heard of or have you ever seen the dagger symbol, which sometimes can be seen next to titles on the list? Yes, I actually think I have. Okay, do you know what it means? No. <laughs> Wait, is that like a shady thing to have next to you? It is and it isn't. Okay. I'm going to explain. So as per the New York Times, a dagger next to a title, indicates that some retailers report receiving bulk orders of this title. So they can still make it onto the list, but the dagger indicates to readers that potentially there's been some shady stuff going on with bulk purchases for this title. How funny. It's like a, an actual asterisk, but it's a dagger. Yeah. It's <laughs> so good. It's very like literary. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> like they really could have just asterisked it and then had the code at the bottom, but they yeah. didn't want to. <laughs> We don't see the dagger symbol flagged super often in like the major lists, like fiction and nonfiction. But if you open up the advice, how to a miscellaneous list, there are a lot of daggers. Seriously? Yes. Are so, they all like business bros? My theory is that a lot of these books have been bulk purchased to hand out at workplaces. Yeah. And honestly, I do think that's kind of above board. I think it is yeah. too. I'm like, Although, that's fine. are we arguing against ourselves, right? Because I said before that a textbook shouldn't be on a New York Times bestseller list if everybody is having to buy it for a purpose. Well, there you go. Is this that different? Exactly. I think oh. that's why like, they've developed the dagger method because yeah. it's like, you know what? This is a bit blurry. Totally. Yeah. But where do you – it's like impossible to draw lines. Exactly. Yeah. So some of the books that have a dagger next to their titles are Atomic Habits by James Clear, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck by Mark Manson, Triggered by Donald Trump Jr., <laughs> <laughs> Give him a few daggers. <laughs> so there's actually a short article on LitHub about why there might be a dagger next to Donald Trump Jr.'s book. So as per that article, it could be that a right-wing think tank of some variety has bought pallet loads of the book. Maybe they'll stick them in gift bags. Maybe they'll sneak them into libraries. Maybe they'll just skip the middleman by having them pulped. <laughs> it's I can understand, though, like Donald Trump Jr.'s book, I think that's probably the case. I can understand with Atomic <laughs> Habits and particularly The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, I mm. do believe people are buying them in bulk now because they're such cult books. As soon as I came across the idea that maybe people were buying them in bulk to like give them out to employees, I was like, that makes so much sense with yeah. that particular genre of book. Yeah, completely. So there's been a few reality TV stars turned... Uh, like authors <laughs> who've ended up with a dagger as well. Oh, no. <laughs> Stacey Schroeder, 
originally from Vanderpump Rules, before she was fired from the show for alleged racism against Akosa, has had two books adorned with the dagger, Next Level Basic and Off With My Head. And former US Bachelorette Hannah Brown is another reality TV star turned author to land a dagger next to her name. In 2021, her memoir, God Bless This Mess, debuted at number 13 on the hardcover nonfiction with a great big dagger next to it. Oh, I quite liked her on The Bachelorette back in the day. (laughs) (laughs) So now... We're going to talk about a book that was too much even for the dagger. Wait, so it didn't even it couldn't even get daggered. It was too far. It was beyond dagger status. Oh my god, stop. <laughs> to tell you this story, I'm going to give you all the important context right after the break. The festive season is right around the corner. It is such an exciting time of year, but it really can also feel like a spectacularly busy time where many of us are rushing around like crazy to tick everything off. Today's sponsor Bailey's wants to remind us to take some time for ourselves in between the chaos. I mean, I don't think me time sounds better than sitting in the sun over the weekend and getting lost in a book whilst enjoying a Bailey's ice latte with biscuits spread. If, like me, you're a big ice latte girl during the summer, then this recipe is one to check out. It combines two great flavours, biscuit spread and Bailey's. This is a great one to enjoy alone or with friends during the festive season. It is so indulgent and creamy, it is the perfect afternoon adult treat. If you're over 18 and interested in an indulgent treat, head online or in-store to shop Bailey's. Remember to drink responsibly. Thank you so much to Bailey's for making this episode of the Shameless Book Club possible. So Zara, have you ever heard of a person called Lani Sarum before? I haven't. That's okay. I was expecting you to say that. (laughs) (laughs) You feel like you're failing a bit of a test. (laughs) So Lani actually got her start in the music industry. She was a band manager to groups like the Plain White Tees, who sung that song. Yeah, yeah, I know. Hey there, Delilah. (laughs) And the 90s blues jam group Blue Travellers. She'd also done some acting work as an extra in films, and her cousin is actually JC Chasse from NSYNC. Oh, no way. Yeah, I know, which is like so random. In 2010, 28-year-old Lani decided it was time to flex her writing muscle. She began to write a screenplay titled Handbook for Mortals. She kept working on other projects in the background and became close with an actor called Thomas Ian Nicholas, who'd starred in all of the American Pie movies, and that was like his claim to fame. Right, right. Lani decided to show Thomas the screenplay for Handbook for Mortals, promising him a supporting role and producer credit if he helped her actually get it made. So this Handbook for Models started as a screenplay. Keep that in mind. Okay. She wanted to turn it into a movie and she wanted to do it with Thomas, this guy from American American Pie. Pie. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So Lani and Thomas became business partners with the goal of getting Handbook for Models made into a film. It was actually a friend of Lani's who encouraged her to convert the screenplay into a book first. Speaking about this decision to Vulture, she said... A lot of the things that grow to be the biggest tend to have both a book and a movie. If people say they don't look at the business perspective of things, they're lying. From the business perspective, it made sense. 
2017, Thomas took the Handbook for Mortals draft to his friend, actress Claire Kramer, who you might know from Bring It On or Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, yeah. So who at the time ran the now defunct pop culture website Geek Nation. Have you ever heard of Geek Nation? No. Yeah, wasn't around for long. Right. Although Geek Nation had never published a book before, Claire really liked the draft and she was really keen to publish it. So, in August 2017, Handbook for Mortals, the novel, was the first book published under Geek Nation Press. Creative title. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, what was this book actually about, you might be wondering? Handbook for Mortals was a young adult fantasy romance novel that centred on 25-year-old woman called Zaid, who came from a family of magic practitioners. Zaid goes on to join a troupe of eccentric stage magicians and performers while having men constantly fawning over her. Here's how Vulture summarised it. The book doesn't offer much in the way of conflict or plot. Zaid auditions for a magic act and is instantly hired. Men meet her and fall in love at a glance. <laughs> that sounds like quite a story. Slay. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I cannot stress this enough. Very, very few people had heard of this book and its first-time author. They were just like you. They had no idea who she was. Lani had no cultural cachet. She was pretty much totally unknown to the public. No one knew anything about Lani prior to Handbook for Mortals being published. There was no buzz about the book online, despite her connection to some actual bona fide celebrities. Blogger Kaylee Donaldson wrote, There was little real excitement or details on this book coming out from the YA young adult blogging world, which is a mighty community who are not quiet about the things they are passionate about. So young adult was this target audience that they were trying to hit, but no one knew. Was talking about it. No one was talking about it. There was no buzz. So it definitely raised a few eyebrows when Handbook for Mortals shot to the top number one of the New York Times young adult hardcover bestsellers list. And a first for Geek Nation Press. Exactly. The first book and number one. Wow. Oh, no. So how did it get there? Was Lani more popular than anyone realised at the time or had she managed to game the system? I think she managed to game the system. Yeah. So obviously it's very strange that a book that no one had ever heard of from an author no one had ever heard of <laughs> was able to climb to number one on the New York Times bestsellers list. Naturally, people on the internet started talking and speculating. At the time, Phil Stamper, who was a best-selling author of queer books for teens and kids, tweeted, I find it strange that a mediocre website can decide it wants to be a publisher and one month later hit number one on the New York Times bestsellers list. He then followed this up with another tweet saying, a book that's out of stock on Amazon and not currently in any physical Barnes & Noble in the tri-state area, a book that no one has heard of except for two niche blogs that covered the Geek Nation press release, sells 5,000 copies in the first week. Okay, so let's break this tweet down. The mediocre website that Phil is referring to here is obviously Geek Nation. And it's very important to note that Handbook for Mortals wasn't in stock on Amazon and Barnes and Noble because it was sold out. (laughs) It wasn't in stock because it wasn't even ordered by these stores to begin with. Because no one knew the book was being released, nor was there any demand for it to be stocked in these stores. Not long after these tweets went out, booksellers started replying to Phil, saying that they had been receiving mysterious bulk orders for Handbook for Mortals. Jeremy West, who currently works in book and brand development at Marvel, also shared a screenshot of a DM he received. The message says, Okay, 
So I'm 95% sure I got a phone call like this on Saturday. The caller was asking if we were reporting our sales to the New York Times, hoping to ring the order up right away for a future event. But I told them I wasn't 100% sure we were New York Times reporting, which is a lie. It just seems super fishy. So <laughs> these booksellers are getting calls from anonymous people being Saying like, like, are you reporting to New York Times? Yeah. And so I want 100,000 books. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> It's not like the most creative way to game it. It's also not the most subtle way no. to game it. <laughs> but I think if you were going to game this in a subtle way, you wouldn't try to shoot straight to number one as a first-time publisher. Exactly. Yeah. Flew a little too close to the sun, I Totally. Think. The New York Times obviously saw this all unfolding on Twitter. And by the end of the day, like the literal day that this book was announced at number one, the Times had changed the list removing Handbook for Mortals altogether. In a statement to NPR, the New York Times said, after investigating the inconsistencies in the most recent reporting cycle, we decided that the sales for Handbook for Mortals did not meet our criteria for inclusion. So obviously, Lani Sarum had to go on the defensive. She approached the issue from a few different angles. First, we're going to have a look at an extremely thorough profile that she did with Vulture. Even though this was kind of a negative press cycle for her, she really took advantage of it, as we're about to see. So she told the publication that the reason she was able to move so many books was because she and Thomas a friend from American Pie, would attend pop culture conventions where Thomas was already a regular, set up a booth together and take orders for her book. And this is pretty much as unlikely as it sounds. As per Vulture, the book, I must stress, had not yet been printed. For several of the conventions, Sarem didn't even have a cover she could show people, but she insists that the buyers didn't care. As she explains it, Nicholas would sit at a booth decorated with American Pie memorabilia and convention guests would wander over and ask him what he was working on next. He'd tell them all about Handbook for Mortals and say that for $35, he'd send them a copy after it was published. (laughs) He and Sarum would promise to autograph it. Sarum characterised these customers as collectors above all else. Quote, some of them will probably never even read the book, she said, but that doesn't matter as long as they buy. She estimates that they sold almost 13,000 books in this way. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, people who hadn't seen the cover of the book couldn't buy it straight away but just trusted them. I mean, it's quite smart spin. <laughs> I mean, it's some kind of spin, I should say. It's a spin. Yeah. It's certainly a spin. It's just not very believable. I mean, if somebody, I was just trying to put myself in these like convention goers shoes. I'm going up to a booth of some random guy from American Pie and some lady that I've never seen before. And they're like, we have a sick idea for a book. Trust us. It's a collector's item, actually. (laughs) (laughs) We don't have a cover, but it's going to be really good and we'll sign it for you. It's like, I'm not buying that book. (laughs) So she estimates that they sold almost 13,000 books this way, an average of more than 2,100 100 per convention. Insane numbers. The rest of the 18,000, she says, they sold through her website and at Wizard World Chicago right after the book came out, which is another convention. The Vulture feature then went on to explain that this was highly, highly unlikely. Charlie Spike Trotman, a writer who runs the largest comic book publisher in Chicago, was highly sceptical. Neil Gaiman, she wrote, could ship 500 books to a Comic-Con and sell them all, but that's on the very highest end of what anyone might hope to sell at a con. I and other people would have noticed this bizarrely, wildly popular prose book that people who are coming to conventions explicitly to buy comics simply couldn't say no to, she wrote. (laughs) 
The article also noted that George R.R. Martin, author of the Game of Thrones series, would perhaps sell hundreds of books, not thousands, oh my God. in a day at a comic convention, and even then, only on the very best of days. So as we established at the top of this podcast, people just, they are not buying that many books. No, 100%. If George R.R. Martin can't yeah. at a Comic-Con convention where his people are, exactly, nobody can. So what were they doing? Were they just buying up from booksellers? That's the question. So Lani and Thomas attributed handbooks incredibly high convention sales to Thomas's celebrity status. <laughs> Mr. American Pie. (laughs) That really killed me. But here's the thing. Even if all of this is true, convention floors do not count as book retailers. Well, Oh, no shit. Yeah. They don't count as book retailers for the New York Times bestsellers list. Yeah, the New York Times are not calling a random convention. Yeah, being like, "Um, how many copies have you sold? So true. (laughs) In the Vulture profile, Lani admitted that in order to fulfil these orders from the conventions, she called up bookstores and ordered the book in bulk. Ah, there it is. There it is. She also admitted that before ordering the books, she would ask if that particular bookstore reported their sales to the New York Times. (laughs) Bit of a girl boss move. As per Vulture, as Saran made it clear to me, she wanted the Times to count her supposed convention sales. So instead of ordering the books directly from her publisher, she took the stealthier route. I wanted to hit the list, she admitted. Doesn't everyone? It's crazy to think not. So this is obviously a very clear admission of guilt. Well, yeah, and this was in the vulture pace. Yeah. I, I love that she did the vulture pace. It's so funny. <laughs> Do you think this is like really bad? I think it's bad. I think it's bad. Mm. Do I think like people are evil? I don't know. I guess the sliding scale of evil over the world is quite long. What do you think? It's kind of hard because like in a way, if she was selling books at conventions and wanted those sales to count towards. I mean, if that was true, I guess we always have to, uh, you know, give the benefit of the doubt if that's what she said. Yeah. But it just seems so wildly unlikely. I just can't imagine buying a book sight unseen, like not even seeing the cover. Just from someone, someone who I don't know. Exactly. Yeah. No, I think I think as it's a really good question. How bad do you think this is? Maybe we should pull our listeners on Instagram. That's a good because idea. Like, what? where are you on the sliding scale of this is bad? Obviously, creative industries are really hard. It takes people a long time to write books. It's incredibly hard to move sales, mm-hmm. all of the above. So, yeah, it's not fun when someone tries to game the system. But the point is she was caught. Yeah, exactly. Do you know what I mean? So it's not like she got away with it. I mean, she was like big time caught. <laughs> How did she afford to buy all these books? That is such a good question. I don't know. I seriously yeah. don't know to this day. All the American pie money. <laughs> but like there must be some kind of like contributor because or maybe she was just like wealthy because yeah. I don't know how she afforded this. So expensive. So <laughs> the investigation did not end there. Bookstore employees kept coming forward on social media, which is so humiliating, exposing more and more Handbook for Mortals bulk orders that had been made across the US. One of these phone calls held an incredibly important clue as to who actually might be behind these orders. So it wasn't just Lani. In one of these calls, a bookstore clerk was giving the was given the phone number of an assistant to the caller, who was ostensibly going to be the one actually taking the bulk order for Handbook for Mortals. Through some expert-level sleuthing from internet detectives, this phone number and subsequent email address revealed that this assistant was working for Result Source. Ah, uh, there we go. Yeah. So again, the money to pay Result Source and to pay allegedly 
allegedly <laughs> full of these things and to buy all these books. That's so much money. And it's not like you're buying them wholesale. You're buying them retail price. Yeah, like $30 a book. Yeah. Thousands and thousands of books. It's so much. So obviously results source are the guys who make bulk orders of books to artificially increase sales numbers in order to get books to the top of bestsellers lists. As per Vulture, I asked Sarem when she'd hired results source. She denied working with the company at all. If that were true, I counted, then why had she thanked three employees of Results Source in the acknowledgements of her book? No! <laughs> that is so good. Oh my God, I love people who kind of want to do something sneaky and don't try to hide it from us. <laughs> like they leave so many breadcrumbs. She admitted then that she had talked to them, but only to solicit their advice. I was trying to figure out the book world because it's very confusing, she said. (laughs) (laughs) I told her I knew for a fact that someone working for Result Source had placed a bulk order for copies of Handbook. I'd seen the order slip myself. Her face went pale and her eyes went wide and the silence stretched before us. (laughs) What a line. Lani and Thomas both went on to just straight up admit to employing either Result Source or a very similar company that worked under the same method to bulk buy copies of the book. Apparently, they couldn't say exactly which company because they had signed an NDA. (laughs) The profile then went on to explain that at least two people who knew Lani had heard her talking about her plan to buy her way onto the Times bestsellers list. Apparently... The actual plan was to buy Handbook for Models in bulk, then hand it out for free at conventions. Right. Sorry, they got confused. (laughs) (laughs) So Lani wasn't done. Around this time, she would take matters very much into her own hands and not just let Vulture tell her story for her. She ended up publishing two separate op-eds in the Huffington Post and Billboard, which is typically a music publication. Her piece for HuffPo was headlined, No, I didn't game the New York Times bestseller list. (laughs) (laughs) She repeated a lot of the convention stuff that we touched upon above. I thought she's admitted to hiring results source or somebody similar. She can't get her story straight. No. So obviously we've already established why things likely did not go down the way that she explained with the convention and the selling books sight unseen for so many reasons, obviously, but... You know what? Let's let Lani explain herself a little bit further. For HuffPo, she wrote, It's not unlike music artists selling CDs at their concerts. What I have chosen to do is build a community of interrelated fans at these 3D, real-time events. This is part of what I believe is an innovative strategy, one that is aimed at building an entire new franchise in the Hunger Games and Game of Thrones mould, yet without having to give up creative control and a huge cut of the revenue to some synergistic studio giant a la Disney or Fox. I honestly believe the steps I took are well within the rules. As I said previously, the sales of my book are real sales to real people. And she doubled down on her piece for Billboard. <laughs> so, hold on. She's now arguing it's a win for the little guy. <laughs> yes. And she does more of this. Oh, my God, stop. <laughs> my books were sold through a practice more akin to how artists sell CDs at their concerts. In the music industry, those sales are registered by SoundScan if they are verified by a venue and therefore count towards an artist's ranking in the charts. Verified by a venue. That's the whole point. Exactly. But the book industry has no such mechanism. It's not like I'm giving away my books in the same vein as artists like U2 and Jay-Z have done with some albums to broaden their audiences. But I'm just going to point out that was her idea, to order (laughs) the books in bulk and then give them away at conventions. Yeah. which is actually not a terrible idea. Like, no. I kind of get it. 
So, unfortunately, in the court of public opinion, Lani was already unbelievably guilty. (laughs) Shocking. (laughs) Which brings us to 2023, current day, and we need to check in with all of our characters in this very, very strange story. Geek Nation, the pop culture website and publisher of Handbook for Mortals, is now completely defunct. The website does not exist anymore, which made researching this episode quite difficult. (laughs) Oh, you poor thing. (laughs) And Handbook for Mortals was the only book their publishing house ever produced. One from one. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) This is probably as expected, but to this day, Linus Saram has not admitted to any kind of wrongdoing. Now, obviously, this book was reviewed extensively on Goodreads, with most of the reviews being trolls or review bombing. But one review from Kai Spellmeyer sums up the situation pretty well. Side note, do you know what review bombing is? Uh, no. Basically, it's like when a book gets highlighted in the public eye for the wrong reason. Oh, and then everyone just jumps on the reviews. Exactly. Yeah. And is like, half a star, I hate this author, blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. So Kai said... The drama surrounding this book is more interesting than the book itself. Saram has also said that when the book first was released, that it was intended to be a series and also a film. However, there has been no update on any further releases from Lani or any movies. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the end of our story. What do you make of that situation? Well, I'm obsessed with it in part. As I said, (laughs) a bit bad, but I'm also obsessed with people, as I said, who who want to game things in completely unsubtle ways. They're the true heroes because they they make these stories so fascinating. I'm now going to look at the New York Times bestseller list when I get back to my computer because I want to see if I can find some daggers. It's pretty fun. Like what I said before, You won't find many daggers in the major lists, but if you look in the more niche lists, you will find them. And the most daggers are in advice, how-to and miscellaneous, probably for the reason that we listed above, which was just like guys buying guys (laughs) that work for them, books. (laughs) I love this. Thank you so much for telling me that story. Thank you. If you would like to hear more from The Shameless Book Club, why don't you follow us on TikTok and Instagram at The Shameless Book Club. Thank you so much for being here, Zara. Thank you, Eilish. Thank you for all your work. And I'm sorry that the fact that Geek Nation was defunct made it so hard. (laughs) (laughs) R.I.P. I want to give a huge thank you to Chelsea Srinivasan for helping me with the research on this episode and a massive thank you to you for listening. See ya. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. 
there is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.